So we started talking about grace about three weeks ago on Easter Sunday. So if you weren't here on Easter Sunday and you missed what Rachel talked about, you totally need to go listen to the podcast because it was powerful and it will help to shape your mind about how God thinks of you. If you weren't here last week, you totally need to go back and listen to the podcast because last week is a powerful message in my opinion and it wasn't my words. I just read a bunch of this guy's <laughs> words. So, um, so if you haven't heard last week, then today builds on, on the last two weeks. So it's totally worth your time to go back and take a look. So just a, a recap again. Uh, about a month ago or longer, um, the Lord, through a um, random event, uh, random circumstances, I stumbled upon this book, and I ended up buying it, started reading it, and I am being deeply challenged by it. So it's called Destined to Reign by Joseph Prince. And um, I've never really listened to Joseph Prince before. I never knew anything about him before this last month. Um, but, man, it, there's a lot of really good stuff in this book about grace, and I'm, I'm doing I'm a changed man. <laughs> so hopefully you will be too. So if you want to know more of what, where we're talking about this, go get the book, read it, okay? So again today, I've got several things I just want to continue to share, kind of part two of what I talked about last week regarding grace. Before I do, I want to talk about last week, quick recap. We talked about three things, okay? The first thing that we talked about, we talked about how God created you and that you are destined to reign with him. Amen? So God, he, Jesus promises you abundant life. He's, I came to give you abundant life, to give you life and have it to the full. So the way that we, the keys to opening that life of living and reigning is by receiving two things. Receiving the abundance of grace, say the abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness. So you have to receive two things. You have to receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Amen? Okay, and righteousness is a gift, 100%. It's nothing that you did. It's nothing that you do. It's nothing that you could ever possibly do. It is a gift from Jesus to you of right standing before God. Amen? The second thing that we talked about is what we said that in the Old Testament, when the priests would go and work in the temple and, and make offerings to the Lord, they would never do what? They would never sit down, okay? Because the work was never done. Okay, when you're offering to God, the work was never done. But when Jesus dies on the cross and he goes up to heaven after being in the ground, he goes up to heaven and he does what? He sits down because the work is finished. There's no more work to be done. The work is totally finished after Jesus died on the cross. And not only that, but he makes you sit down with him because there is literally nothing else you could possibly do in God's sight to make yourself in right standing with God. Amen? Because your right standing with God is 100% only a gift from Jesus. It is a gift of righteousness. So there's nothing left to do. Just receive the gift. Then the third thing we talked about was that Satan has been disarmed. Do y'all remember what his weapon was? The law, okay? It says that Satan has been disarmed and that God put it on display at the cross and what did Satan arm himself with? God did not give Satan a weapon, but Satan armed himself with the handwriting requirements, which was written by the finger of God on two stone tablets, the law of God. And Satan took the law of God, and he knew no man can live up to this law, and he armed himself as a weapon, accusing you, you'll never live up to this. You'll never live up to this. You can't do this. It's impossible to be right before God. 
But God, through Jesus on the cross, disarmed Satan. And he took his weapon away from him. And so today, when Satan comes at you, accusing you, saying, you can't do it, you failed, you're miserable, whatever, Satan has no power and no weapon in your life. Amen? All right. So today I want to talk about, I want to continue to build on these things. So let's look at Psalms 32, verse 2. All right? Psalms 32, verse 2. King David, he said this, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Everybody say imputeth. All right. Everybody look at me and smile and say imputeth. All right. Some people may not know what that means. So here's what imputeth means. According to Miriam Webster, it says to lay the responsibility or blame for, okay, or to credit a person or a cause to attribute something to a person. That's impute, okay? So I'm going to impute upon McCoby that he held the beat this morning with the worship band. We're imputing to him, okay? All right? Uh, I don't, some of you guys may have known my car got rear end. It was like a hit and run in December, okay? So here's the, here's the scoop. I'm driving my car. I'm going to a, a final walkthrough of one of my clients. They're about to buy a house. I pull up on the street. I park on the street. The house is right here. Across the street when I pull up, there's a house over here, and there's a silver expedition parked in the driveway facing the house. I run inside. We're in there three, four, maybe five minutes. I run back outside, and there's a giant, basically, hole in the side of my car, okay? And the, the rear door has been smashed in, okay? And the interesting thing, initially I thought, oh my gosh, like I was inside moments, who saw this? And I'm gonna start looking around, trying to find somebody who was a witness. There's no witness. But then I start to look at this huge smash in my car, and I'm thinking, man, it must have been a hit and run. I'm hopeless, I'll just have to take care of it all myself. But it actually, the way that the, the dent was in the door it was not like a hit and then run, okay? It wasn't like a forward sweeping motion. It was like a boom, oops, go back where it came from, okay? That's what, that, and you could tell very clearly. Like it went deep into the door and then it stopped and then it drove back where it came from, okay? So then I started thinking, I wonder, you know, there was this car right there just a couple seconds ago and it's gone now. That kind of makes sense trajectory. So I start stalking this dude and, um, and he, all day long, he was gone, come back the next morning, like 8, 7.30, I think it was, and I pull up, and the, there's the car, it's facing the wrong way, and I'm like, oh, he knows, <laughs> he totally knows, so I get out, I park again, I go take a look, and sure enough, where I think there should be damage and marks on his car, because there was this one white streak, I have a black car, sure enough, in the exact same place, on his bumper, exactly where I thought it should be, are marks on his car, Okay. So then I measure it. You know, I walk over from how high his was to where it, exactly. It lines up perfectly. So I go knock on the door. Hey, hey, man. And he's not happy to see me. And I'm like, hey, I, I don't, this, this, you know, I could be crazy. But did you, um, yesterday, like, I, I pulled up. I don't know if you saw me. He's like, yeah, yeah, I saw you. Okay. You know, did, well, did you hit my car? <laughs> he's like, no. It didn't go very well. I won't use the words that he used. Um, but he completely refused to take any responsibility, even though there were marks on his cars. He refused to line, you know, like, I said, hey, tell you what, let's just back your car up and just see if the marks line up exactly. If it's not to the half inch, you're off the hook, no problem. He refuses, okay? So we had to go to the, through the insurance system. And guess what? The insurance company imputeth to him that he hit my car. 
So they're, they're imputing to him that the responsibility is upon him because all the marks lined up perfectly to what happened in my car, okay? But guess what? Praise the Lord. King David says in Psalms 32, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Amen? So guess what? God does not impute to you your sins, even though you did it and you deserve to pay for your sins, you were a blessed man and woman because you don't have to pay for your sins. Yes. Okay. So, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Um, so we talked about imputing. Today we're blessed because the Lord no longer counts your sins against you. And because of the cross of Jesus, you will never be punished for your sins again. That one kind of like shakes me up. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. Because of Jesus, you will never be punished for your sins again. Your sins were imputed to Jesus so that they would never be imputed to you. Amen? Can you say hallelujah? So under the new covenant of grace that was sealed with the blood of Jesus, God has already judged sin completely on the body of Jesus. And this means that even when you fall short of God's holy standards, the punishment for your sin will not fall on you. Hallelujah. Amen. So look at what the Apostle John said in John, 1 John 2.1. And John, if you remember, is the man who claimed to be the beloved of Jesus, <laughs> Right? which I love that he self-proclaimed. <laughs> I was the one that Jesus loved the most, which I think Jesus probably laughs at when he thinks about it. Like, oh, John, <laughs> claiming to be the one, right? Come on. But I think it's awesome, too. I think Jesus loves it because Jesus loved him so well that he wholeheartedly believed, I'm the one that Jesus loves so much. And Jesus is thinking, yes, you are, and so is this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. Like, if my kids were to ask, if you ask my kids, which of them do I love the most? I hope that they all say, Daddy loves me the most. I'm the number one that he loves, right? Okay, moving on. First John 2, 1 John 2.1, he says this, If anyone sins, he will be punished for his sins. That's not what it says. Everybody's like, oh, good verse. No, that's not what it says. Praise God, okay? Here's what it says. If anyone sins, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Say amen. You have an advocate. So what's that mean? Jesus today is your advocate. He represents you before God. And so as Jesus is, so are you. Okay? Is Jesus righteous before God? Then so are you. Is, is Jesus accepted fully before God? Yeah? Then so are you. Amen? Is he well-pleasing before God? Yes. Then guess what? So are you. Amen and amen and amen. Okay? Graham Cook says it this way. He says, do you think Jesus was punished enough for sin? Do you think the Father judged Jesus thoroughly enough? Did he spend every last ounce of anger and wrath on Christ on the cross. Yeah? Okay? Absolutely. So then, there's no judgment left. There's no anger left. God is fully satisfied. 
between Calvary, which was judgment on Christ, and the judgment day when all the books will be opened, there is no place for judgment in the world. If all the judgment has been, been, been put on Christ, then there is no judgment for us to enter into. Amen? It's the goodness and kindness of God that brings people to repentance. Amen? So whatever sins you did this week, there's no judgment because it's already been taken care of. Amen? The power of the gospel, Joseph says, is to live each waking moment having the confidence that all your sins have been forgiven. The power of the gospel is to live each waking moment having the confidence that all your sins have been forgiven. God's righteous anger against sin has been satisfied, and today we can expect only love from him, not judgment. We expect grace, not punishment, and we will never be punished in the old covenant way ever again. Say hallelujah. That's good news. Amen? And it's so easy for believers to have the wrong thinking about this. Like, I had it defaulted inside of me. Just as a human being, you mess up, there's this weird period before you're better with whoever you messed up, you know, in their eyes. As a child, that's how, how it goes oftentimes, unless you have really godly discipline happening in your house. So even in junior high, high school, college, I would wrestle with this mindset and think, oh, man, I blew it. Like, gosh, darn it. Oh, I loved God so much, but now I can't love him so much for the next, like, three or four or five days because I got to, like, work my way up back the ladder till I'm, like, this holy person who is in right standing with God. And then after day five, then my prayers will be powerful and effective. Then I will be righteous after day five, and God will listen to me. Anybody else have that? Okay, guess what? It is a lie from the pit of hell. Because there is nothing you can do to earn righteousness before God's eyes. It's already finished. Amen? Okay, let's move on to the next concept. We want to look at the Garden of Eden. There's two trees in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> one, the first one is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, get on the edge of your seat. You've got to track with me because this was a, a revelation to me. And I, th I think it's so good, but you're going to have to track with me. Ready? There's two trees. The first one is the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree that Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from. And have you noticed that this tree was not called the tree of the knowledge of evil. It was the knowledge of good and evil, both together. Okay? This because the tree is a picture of God's law, or the Ten Commandments, okay? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a picture of the law, which was good, and to know good and evil, okay? They tie together. So what's so wrong with knowing good and evil? What's wrong with knowing the law? And the danger is this. You can know the law inside and out, and yet be miles and miles and miles away from God, Okay? Under the law, all you have is religion. Say religion. Not a relationship with God. But God is after a relationship with us. Okay? One that is dependent on his goodness and his goodness alone. So when man partakes of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he becomes dependent on his self-efforts to do good and keep away from evil, which produces religion. And when a man is depending on his own efforts, he will fail. 
Okay? On the other hand, when a man partakes of the tree of life, he's completely dependent on Jesus and Jesus alone to provide life for him. Amen? So now who planted the tree in the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Was it Satan? No. God planted it. Okay? And in fact, God planted it, and when he finished with the Garden of Eden, he saw everything that he made, and he said, this is good. So God looks at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he says, this is good. But at the same time, he looks at Adam and Eve and says, don't do it. That's not good. How does that work? How can God say, that's good, but do not partake of this thing? Right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was from the Lord, but while the tree was good in itself, it was not good for man to partake of. So likewise, while God's law is holy, just, and good, it was not meant for man to keep. Okay? So man has no ability to keep the law. And also, man can't pick and choose which law he's going to uphold. Okay, I'll I'll do number one, but I won't do number nine, whatever it is. It doesn't work that way. You fall on one, you've failed the whole ten, okay? Therefore, once a man fails in one facet of the law, he's condemned to die and can no longer partake of the tree of life, which would give him eternal life. So this is why when Adam and Eve sinned, God had to drive them out of the garden and place a cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay? Everybody trying to track with me? We're still moving forward? Okay? I told you you're going to have to sit on the edge of your seat to, to track with me. Now, why is this significance? Because there's a principle in the Bible interpretation. It's called the law of first mention, which says that every time a word is mentioned, First in the Bible, the meaning of the word in that instance has a special significance for how you're supposed to understand it throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay? So in this scripture of Genesis, talking about how God put the angel at the entrance to block the way to the tree of life with this flaming sword, this never-ending sword. Okay? That's the first time the word sword is mentioned. And here... It's seen as God's judgment. It's a restless sword turning every way so that there's no way that a sinful man, having disobeyed God, could ever return to him. All right? Now, what's the last time in the Old Testament that the word sword is mentioned? It's in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And here's what it says. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Okay? So the last time the sword, which is God's judgment, it's restless judgment, blocking the way of the tree of life, the last time it's mentioned in the Old Testament is speaking to Jesus, our good shepherd, and how all of his disciples fled when he was struck on the cross. So it shows us the restless sword of judgment, which for so many generations had barred sinful men from a holy God, was finally sheathed into the bosom of our Lord Jesus when the full judgment and vengeance of God for all sins came upon him on the cross. Jesus was smitten on the cross for our sins. And by sacrificing himself and absorbing the full brunt of the judgment that was meant for you and for me, Jesus stopped the sword of judgment that prevents us from partaking of the tree of life. He sacrificed his own body to open the way to the tree of life. 
And God will never condemn us because his only begotten son has already been condemned on our behalf. So therefore, the cross at Calvary has now become the tree of life for us in the new covenant because we can freely partake of his righteousness and live each day without guilt, condemnation, and shame. Amen? I had to read it like 30 times, so (laughs) I'm with you. But oh my goodness, how good is that? God's sword of judgment has been fully absorbed by Jesus, and he opened the way once again to the tree of life, which became the cross for us to freely partake of. Hallelujah. Amen? Okay, so God's judgment on sin is fully satisfied. Okay, I want to talk about another thing that we get wrong oftentimes. What's one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit? It's easy in our Christian world, and I think the church preaches it wrong often, that the Holy Spirit comes to convict you of your sins. Okay? All right. So it's super easy to believe that. I'm sure I've believed that for years and years and years and years and years. But check this out. Does the Holy Spirit convict you of sin? This is what Joseph says. So that's a very good question. The answer is really simple. Now pay attention because this will liberate you. The bottom line is that the Holy Spirit never convicts you of your sins. He never comes to point out your faults. And I challenge you to find a scripture in the Bible that tells you that the Holy Spirit has come to convict you of sins because you're not going to find any. The body of Christ is living in defeat because many believers don't understand that the Holy Spirit is actually in them to convict them of their righteousness. Amen? Even when you fail, he is ever present in you to remind you that you are continually cleansed by the blood of Jesus and that you are in right standing before God. What? Is this shaking anybody up? It's powerful, okay? It's so easy to flip the two. And once you agree that you actually don't need the Holy Spirit to come tell you when you've sinned, I mean... Most of y'all spouses probably do a good enough job of that, okay? <laughs> Mine doesn't. She never convicts me of sin. But even non-believers who clearly do not have the Holy Spirit, they know when they blew it. Right? They don't need to be convicted of their sin, okay? But what they do need to be is convicted of their right standing before God. Okay. So it doesn't take revelation from the Holy Spirit to see that you failed. However, when you know that you failed, what you do need is for the Holy Spirit to convict you of your righteousness. When you need him to show you that even though you failed, you are still the righteousness of God in Christ. And to know and believe that God still sees you as righteous even when you sinned certainly takes a revelation from the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? Don't get too excited about it. I mean, gosh, guys, it's so good. Does that change your perspective of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does? And he, He's coming to be like, dude, it's okay. God sees you as righteous. All your sins are forgiven. All your sins are washed away. You're still in right standing before God. Jesus is still in right standing before God, and so are you. So what about John 16, 8 through 11? This scripture is... Um, Years, for years, I've looked at this scripture and questioned, had, had wonderings. What in the world? I'm trying to follow, trying to see what it says. 
And I felt like what Joseph said about this is so helpful. Okay, so John 16, 8 through 11. It says, and when he, talking about the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute, Grant. You just told me the Holy Spirit never convicts me of sin. And now Jesus says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Hold on. It says he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father, this is Jesus speaking, and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay? Anybody confused yet? A little bit? Anybody? Okay. So get this. When he said that the Holy Spirit would come to convict the world of sin because they do not believe in him. It's clear that he's referring to unbelievers because they're of the world. And notice the Holy Spirit doesn't convict the world of sins. Okay? Jesus did not say that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sins. Plural. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of only one sin. What is the one sin? Jesus says it, because they do not believe in me. The one sin that the Holy Spirit comes to convict unbelievers of is the sin of not believing in Jesus. It's according to what Jesus says. Isn't that good? So the Holy Spirit isn't coming to convict the world of their bad lifestyles. He's only coming to convict them to say, believe in Jesus. He's the best. He's taken away your sins. Believe in him. Amen? All right. And then... Of their righteousness. I'm going to read the scripture again. And when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So if the Holy Spirit never convicts you, the believer of sins, then what does he convict you of? Righteousness. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts you of righteousness because Jesus went off to the Father, and we don't see him anymore to remind us and to tell us in person, in the flesh. And so Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to come and remind you, hey, you are the righteousness of Christ. God sees you as righteous. That is what he convicts you of. So now you are made righteous. Are you made righteous by your works or by faith in Jesus? By faith in Jesus. So by now you should know that. For righteousness is not right doing, but right standing before God because of your right believing. Say that with me. Righteousness is not right doing. Say right doing. But right standing. Say right standing. Before God because of your right believing. All right. So when you miss it, the Holy Spirit comes to convict you and remind you that you are the righteousness of God because of Jesus Christ. And he's present to remain, to remind you of the main clause of the new covenant that God will be merciful to you and to your unrighteousness and your sins and your lawless deeds. He will remember them no more. The Holy Spirit is your helper. He was sent to live in you and to help you remind you of your righteousness. Isn't that so good? Okay. Wrapping up. Turn the corner here, okay? So last week we talked about, um, I had you close your eyes and picture the river of God's love and his blessing flowing from the throne of grace. And inside of his river had all of his blessings, all of his favor, all of his goodness flowing with that. And there were no fences to the river. Anybody who wanted to receive 
the favor of God, the blessing of God, the love of God. Anybody could walk into the river freely. Anybody who wanted to, right? So um, I was meditating about that this last week, and here's, I felt like the Lord told me something about it that I thought was really good. He said, my, my favor is all over you, not because you have done anything to deserve it, but because you've chosen again and again to walk in it. It's like this. When you want to walk in the river, you've got to be willing to go where the river goes. The river moves constantly. It's constantly ebbing and flowing, turning left and turning right, going straight. At times, it seems like it goes backwards. The river is almost never the straightest line to get to the end goal. And the river most certainly doesn't always make sense. In fact, sometimes the river actually dries up, and you have to get up and walk, and it seems like the river died. But in fact, if you keep following the flow, you will find the waters flowing again. For those who are up for the adventure, they can spend their lives in the middle of that river, constantly seeing new things they never dreamt possible. At times it's dangerous. At times it's lonely. At times it's breathtaking. But it is a good life for those who follow it. And it's just like that spiritually. For those who choose to jump into the river, they will be covered with blessings and favor unending. But it is not a task for the faint of heart or the lazy. It's not a task for the unadventurous. It is a life for the brave, for the determined, for those who will not let up or give up. And in the end, those who live that life will find it was the only choice worth making because its rewards far outweigh its challenges. Amen? I thought that was so good. So my challenge to you today is to recognize there's literally nothing you can do to become more righteous in God's eyes. Okay? There's literally nothing you can do to receive more of God's love or to merit more of God's love. There's more you can do to receive his love. Spend more time with him. Right? But to merit, to get more of God's attention for you, there's literally nothing you can do. You want more of God's favor in your life? Step into the river. You want more of God's blessing in your life? Then make the choice to freely walk into the river. Because you don't have to do anything specific or special. You don't have to check off any boxes to walk into it. All you have to do is receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. It's so simple. And it's so good. Amen? And so this week, when you blow it, this week, when you blow it today, when you get mad at somebody today, do not believe the lie that you have to wait for days to try to get back okay with God once again. It's a lie. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of your righteousness. And let him tell you, no, you blew it, but you right now are the righteousness of God in Christ. And God sees you 100% fully well-pleasing to him right now, only because of what Jesus did for you. And then enter back into that right relationship like God wants you to be in. Amen? All right. I'm going to turn on some music. Let's just pray. I want you to take like two or three minutes and just ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want to tell me about what we've just heard today? And if you want, you can write down on your phone or write down on your paper. 
Holy Spirit, come, convict us of righteousness. Come and solidify the good news of Jesus Christ deep into our hearts. Come and make right wrong thinkings in our minds. What do you want to speak to each person individually? What do they need to take away from this message today? So, Father, we just thank you so much for the way that you did this, all that Jesus did for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to deserve it. But we choose to walk into your favor, walk into your blessings, walk into your grace. We choose to wholeheartedly receive the gift of righteousness that was given to us by Jesus. And we just thank you. We live a lifestyle of thanks to you because we really don't deserve any of it. We love you so much. Holy Spirit, this week, convict us of our righteousness more than ever before and help us to stay in the middle of that river so we can live that abundant life, so we can reign like you promised we should. In Jesus' name, amen.